You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so let's, uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start there. Good to see the snow today, Lord, and to be reminded of our sins being washed <laughs> wider than snow. And it's always a, a blessing to live in this part of the country and, and to see the winter come. Uh, love it, Lord. Appreciate it. And um, tonight, Lord, as we uh, go through Galatians here, we pray that we continue to hear your voice. Uh, every person here, every individual, um, we pray, Lord, as a church, corporately, we would hear what you'd have to say to us. Um, we, we don't want to come here and, um, and just go through the motions here, Lord. We don't want to have just a Christian click, per se. We we want to hear what you have to say. We want to be changed. We want things that are in our lives to be removed that, that is unpleasing to you, um, that, that you don't want there. We, we want every, every ounce of pride removed. And, and so, Lord, use your word. Your word is, is sometimes like water to wash us. Sometimes it's like a fire to, to burn up the chaff in our lives. Sometimes it's like a hammer to, to break the hard areas. Um, Whatever we need, Lord, we, we are available, and we ask you to give us what we need here. Um, we love your word. We love uh, all that it's produced in the life of this church. We, we recognize, Lord, that um, we always have to be word-centered. It always has to come back to the scriptures here. Uh, we're a Bible church. Uh, we're a Jesus church. <laughs> and uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd reveal more of yourself to us tonight. Uh, bless the... The, the toddler room, all the helpers there with the little ones, uh, the Sunday school teachers with the children, and the children's ministry there. and uh, Lord, we pray for salvation for the kids who are coming of age and, um, you know, who knows at what point they're at, but maybe they're at that place where they'll understand and recognize they need you as their Savior and they'd, they'd invite you in, Lord. Or for anybody here tonight, you know, who has never made you their Lord, who's never um, given their lives over to you. They've been their Lord. They've been in charge. But maybe tonight they would give you the charge over their life. And we would pray for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So I thought we'd start here in 1 Corinthians um, because Paul, you know, as he's writing to all those churches, Galatia is not a letter just to one church, but it's a letter to a group of churches, he's, he's concerned, he's more than concerned, he's shocked that these people in this area um, who had once heard the gospel, believed in the gospel, um, with the deepest conviction, showed a transformation in their lives, uh, who had so soon turned from the gospel. But I thought it'd be good if we just go back and just go over what is the gospel, you know, what is the pure gospel? Because his concern was that they had been told another gospel, a distortion of it. And nowadays, we have to be worried about that too. We have to be concerned that we have the pure, unadulterated, true gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you ever want to know, you know, what the gospel is in a nutshell, you know, or if you've ever wanted to tell somebody else and you've struggled to kind of put it in short order here just to get it across, you can find it right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, this is a letter to one church, the Corinthians, and he says it right here in verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. So, you know, here it is in plain form. If you ever wonder what Paul said to the Corinthians when he walked into Corinth or what he ever said to any church when he walked into any city, this is what he would tell them. 
which also you have received and wherein you stand. So the, the Corinthians, when they heard the gospel, they received the God, they accepted it. You know, that's why we tell people, have you accepted Jesus Christ? What we mean is, have you accepted the implications of the gospel and who Jesus is? Have you, have you said, yes, I agree with that? You have to agree with that in order to be saved. You know, you can't just be a good person to be saved. There's going to be a lot of good people in hell uh, that disagree with Jesus who don't receive the gospel, you know. And by the way, that's not good news, is it? That's bad news, you know. It's extremely bad news if all of my salvation is placed on me or on you. If the burden of being a good person and to get into heaven is placed on you, that is not good news. Because you know, and I know, you have never been always that good, have you? You know, you know what you thought of today. You know what you thought of yesterday. You, you know you wanted to ram that guy who cut you off on the road. <laughs> you know what you're capable of, you know. So to put that burden on a human being is horrible news. But the good news is, you know, all of our sin... And all of our goodness can be placed, what, on him, and we trust in him and what he's done. So that's good news. That's what gospel means. So you, they received it, and they're standing on that. They're, they're standing on the works of Christ. They're not standing on their own works. They're standing on his morality, not their own morality. By which you also are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you had believed in vain... And he says this, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. So he's saying, here I am. I, I got this from Jesus Christ. And he's going to lay that out in Galatians 1 tonight when we finally get there. But he says, I received it from Jesus Christ. This is what it took for me to get saved. And I'm just passing it on to you. Um, first of all, which I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, number two, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There it is right there. You know. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? You can share that with anybody. You know, If somebody asks you, what's the gospel? Or if you, if you say, well, uh, you know, can I tell you the gospel? What's gospel? Gospel means good news. Well, yeah, what's the gospel? Jesus Christ was what? He was died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again the third day. That's, that's what it is, you know. Now, here's the situation. That just seems way too simple, doesn't it? And immediately when you start to think of the simplicity of the gospel, you think you need to dress it up a little bit more. You think that somehow nobody's going to ever believe that, you know. But remember what Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1. I think it's around verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Paul believed it, you know, and far too many people don't believe in the power of the gospel. That's why they have to add all kinds of things to it to try to dress it up, to make it palatable to other people. We have to believe in the power of it. And that's what Paul did. Paul believed in the power of the gospel because the power is not in me and the power is not in you. And God doesn't require you to have some sort of charisma and delivery, perfect delivery, to sort of convince people, persuade people that way, trust in the gospel, trust in that simple message, and then leave it up to the Holy Spirit to work on them because the Holy Spirit can use that message right there to save even the likes of Paul, you know. Doesn't that free you up, you know? Because I think too many times, too many people get all, you know, bound up in their theology and worried about, well, you know, they're never going to believe this. This just sounds way too incredible, you know, <laughs> you know. And, and then we don't share it in its simple form. So share it in a simple form and just go with that. So let's go to Galatians now. And that's exactly what Paul did when he went into these towns. He walked in. Um, if they were Jews, and I, and I hap happen to think that a lot of the people he's writing to here uh, were Jews, 
Um, but what he would do is go to the Old Testament, and he'd go through the Scripture, and they'd recognize messianic psalms or messianic passages. And, and then what Paul would do is he would then talk about the life of Jesus, and then he would you know, cross that bridge with those messianic passages say, you know, Jesus is this Messiah. This cannot be a coincidence. You know, maybe Isaiah 53 or maybe uh, Psalm 22, maybe Psalm 69. There's so much about Jesus in Psalm 69 there. Uh, maybe even Genesis, you know, over and over and over again, you know, Abraham, Isaac, you know, and him being sacrificed. So uh, he, would, he would do that. Here they receive it, they believe it, and now how soon he says, look at verse 6, I marvel that you are removed from him and called you into the grace of Christ into another gospel. In fact, he's, he's so bothered by this that this really bothers him so much. He says two times, he says, if somebody you know, shares with you another gospel and distorts that pure, simple form here. He says, let him be damned, you know. He says, even if I do it, even if I come to you, if I somehow go crazy, you know, and I come back to you later and I distort what I've originally told you, then listen, don't listen to it, you know, don't pay attention to me. If an angel, if somebody supernatural comes to you and tells you this, don't listen to it, you know. Um, so he says it two times. That's how strongly he feels about it. But I think it's important to notice this, um, and we covered it, but I, I don't want to minimize it. But when Paul says what they're removed from, he doesn't say that they're removed from you know, a creed. He doesn't say they're removed from a religion. He doesn't say they're removed from some doctrine or something. Notice, when you receive the gospel... When anyone receives the gospel, what, what you're doing is you're entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ himself. You know, I, I think that is so important to really acknowledge and let people know. You know, what you're doing is you're building a relationship with God Almighty. You know, Paul says, how? How can this be possible that you are so easily, so soon removed in your personal relationship from him, from Jesus Christ, you know? You know, and sometimes we forget what God might be going through. You know, if this bothers Paul so much that there's been a breakup, a, a, a relationship broken here, uh, what about God, you know? And how, how does he feel about it? We forget that God has a heart and that he really does love all of us and he really does long to have a relationship with us. It's got to hurt him, don't you think? If somebody breaks up or somebody walks away, um, you know, think of it like this. Um, I, I just, I, I adore my little girl. I, I love her. Uh, I mean, I can't even put words to it how much I love her. And I'm a sinful human being. I'm an imperfect, selfish dad, you know. Uh, there, there's sometimes I'm just, I'm not the best dad, you know. How many of you dads can relate to that? You know, you love your kids immensely, and yet you know, you know, there's sometimes you just... You lose your patience, you know, on that little, oh, daddy, what? What do you want? You know, you just, oh, man, why did, I, why did I do that, you know? And just think of God and how much he loves every individual in this relationship and how he wants to really have a daily close conversation. He, he loves to have us ask him questions there. I mean, I love it when Maddie asks me questions, you know. I, I love it when she thinks I'm the smartest, you know. Eventually, she'll figure it out that I'm not. But, uh, but I love it when she, she, oh, wow, Daddy, you're really smart. Yes, I am, you know. <laughs> you know, it won't be long. There's going to be another boy, Ooh, you know. He's going to be smarter than me. At least she's going to think so, you know. But, uh, but what if someone came along into her life and began to lie to her? and began to distort her ideas of who I am. And then she no longer trusted me anymore. And then all of a sudden she doubts me. And I, Maddie, what, what happened, you know? But, and then she distanced herself from me and now we can't talk anymore because somebody came in and told her a complete lie, you know? It would break my heart, you know? And now I can't talk to her. I can't fellowship with her because she's believed a lie. It doesn't matter what I've said, what I can say. I just can't get through to her. I mean, 
you know, I haven't changed, but yet somebody came in and lied, and now the relationship is broken. I, I would be devastated, you know, and just think of God. Tony and I were talking about Alzheimer's, you know, because several people in the fellowship over the years have had to deal with somebody who has Alzheimer's. I mean, that what I hear about it, you know, I've never been through it. Um, I've had only a snapshot with it, but um, it's just, it's, it's painful for the people who are family members, you know. I, I remember Jeff Breed, Pastor Jeff Breed, he took in his mom, and his mom started to have Alzheimer's like this, and she was a different person, you know. And Alzheimer's patients, they, they snap, they don't re- remember you, they don't recognize you, and, and, and then the family members say, Mom, Dad, you know, it's me, you know, and, and, they, and it's just, it, it's hurtful and painful that way. Uh, for the family members, just think about God, you know. You know, here he has these people, they're saved, we have fellowship, and then all of a sudden they're a different person, you know. God hasn't changed, but it must crush his heart, you know, when any one of us begin to drift away from him, you know, in that fashion, or grow cold in our love and our affection from him, or we don't talk to him for a while that way. It's got to hurt him. And so Paul recognizes this, and he says, hey, you know, I just, how can this be so soon like this? And then Paul says in verse 10, he says, this is how I, I have had to, to live my life now that I know Jesus Christ. For I do now, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men... I should not be the servant of Christ. And, and this is what Paul is trying to commend to them because he has recognized, and we'll, we'll get into it. He's going to elaborate in the next several verses here. He's going to elaborate just what he had to go through when he had to make a choice between Jesus Christ or the people that respected him and loved him, you know, that he loved and cared about. And he was going to have to ultimately make a choice to divorce himself from the very people who said they were his friends. Uh, but he'd have to divorce himself from them to what? To be aligned with Jesus Christ and because he gave his allegiance to him this way. And he didn't want to hurt God. He says, I want to please God this way. And I think that every single Christian has to at some point in time come to grips with this. You know, you're going to have your own challenges. It doesn't matter where you are in your walk with the Lord. At some point in time, you're going to be challenged with this because you're going to have to make a decision, uh, whether it's for holiness, uh, whether it's for no compromise, uh, whatever it is, is Christ is drawing you closer to him. He's sanctifying you. Uh, it may be that you might have friends that don't want to go that for, far. They might be pulling you in another direction. And so, you know, you're going to try to hold on to your friends. And if you want to keep pleasing your friends, that's one thing. But Jesus might be calling you to a greater walk with him. And they want to, you know, pull you into a carnality that you recognize God doesn't want for you anymore. And, and, and the two can't be, you know, together here. They're mutually exclusive. So at any given time, Christians are going to have to make a choice. Well, look, you know, am I going to please them or am I going to please the Lord? You know, and I don't want to compromise because I'm in a real, living, you know, daily relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, the resurrected Christ. This is not just some sort of ethereal belief system here. He's real. He's in my life. I don't want to hurt him. And so every Christian is going to have to, you know, come to that point in time uh, sooner or later, you know. Um, but I'll tell you this, it, it, the first time you do it or the second time you do it, it's very challenging, you know. God wants to grow your spiritual backbone. He wants to grow your spiritual spine, you know. And Jesus says, inevitably, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have to count the cost to follow Jesus Christ, you know. This is part of picking up your cross, denying him daily and following him, you know. And when you pick up your cross and follow him, denying yourself daily, there are other people who are not going to follow, you know. And you might have to break off human relationships, personal relationships, in order to follow Jesus and to be a good witness this way. I'll tell you what, if you're afraid of human beings, that'll make it more difficult to follow Jesus. You know, I think there's that proverb that says, the fear of man is a snare. 
it's a trap, you know. And you can avoid the trap by at least recognizing that it's a trap, you know. Uh, I think of Peter. You know, Peter was a classic. There is, you know, there's no doubt that Peter loved the Lord. No doubt, you know. I mean, he, he was in love with him. He wanted to serve him. Uh, he was ready to, to take on the whole world. He thought it was time for the kingdom. You know, let's take the swords now. Bring it, you know. You got to love that, you know, ambition. Um, but he, he didn't really know who he was. And so give him a little test to be sifted by the devil there in front of that little girl there. Boy, it didn't take long for him to recognize, man, I'm weak. I, I'm ashamed of Jesus. He'd had to acknowledge he's ashamed to admit that he's a follower of Jesus Christ in public. You know? And you know the rest of the story there. But how many Christians that are out there who are ashamed to admit they're followers of Jesus out there in the public. You know, here, it's easy. You know, here, it's great. We can come here. I'm a Christian. I'm with Christians. But out there, oh, I don't want to tell them. I don't want to let them know. I don't want to let my friend know. I, don't want, I certainly don't want to let my boss know. I don't want to let my coworkers know. Man, they're not going to like me, you know. They're going to think I'm stupid. They're going to think I'm silly, you know. I mean, that's a horrible existence for a Christian, you know. That's a horrible, miserable, uh, almost like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, you know. It's like a, almost like a double life. You know, to come here and experience the freedom, the joy, and to worship, and then to go out there and to be in a prison, you know, and to be afraid, you know. Listen, don't be afraid. The devil's got you in fear, you know. You're going to have to make a choice. And make it, once you make a choice and once you start to live for Jesus that way with a backbone like that and stand up, you're going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. You know, the Holy Spirit is not going to be grieved. The Holy Spirit's going to be empowering you and strengthening you, and you'll be bold. I think of that one psalm. It says, the righteous are bold as a lion, you know. So Paul recognized that. He wants to tell them. He says, well, you know, what are you, what are you afraid of here? You need to make a stand here. You know, like those Corinthians, they received it and they stood in the gospel. You stand in the gospel too. So now what Paul does is he, he kind of lets them know. He says, I'm not just telling you what to do. I'm going to tell you this is what I had to do. This is what I lived like. Let me just give you some background. Now, He's going to spend the better part of the rest of this chapter and the better part into chapter 2, all the way over to verse 14, giving his personal testimony. And the reason why he has to give his personal testimony here to sort of, you know, uh, let them know who he really is and what he's like is because the Judaizers had done what? The Judaizers had followed him wherever he had gone into town and try to destroy the work that he had already begun. So they came on the back, on the heels of, of Paul there, and what would they do? They couldn't necessarily destroy the message. And since they couldn't destroy the message, they tried to destroy the messenger. You, know? you ever heard that phrase, don't shoot the messenger? Well, that's what they did. Because since they couldn't touch the gospel in all of its purity and all its goodness, what they would do is destroy his reputation. Just good old-fashioned rumors, innuendos, and character assassination. And what ended up happening, just ad hominem attacks there, they start, whoa, we didn't know that about that guy. Oh, really? Oh, And so because they were so successful at discrediting Paul, then they stopped believing the gospel that way. So Paul feels it necessary. He doesn't do it all the time, but he feels it necessary now. Listen, let me just tell you what those guys are like because I was one of them. And let me tell you what the gospel did for me. Verse 11, he says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure, that's a great phrase to underline, beyond measure. This is out of his own words here. Beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals 
and mine own nation, being more exceeding zealous. That's a good one. More exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. So here it is. He says, I didn't make this up. I don't know what those guys told you about me, but I didn't make it up. I didn't get it from a human being. I got it straight from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. I got a revelation, you know. I met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus Christ. I have talked to him. I visited with him. And he's the one who gave me this revelation. And that's what we need to remember. You know, the gospel is not man-made, isn't it? You know? Well, isn't Christianity just like any other religion? No, it's not man-made. It's from heaven. It's from God. It's his idea. He came up with it. You know, I think of that one verse that says, salvation is of God. Uh, he's the one who needed to produce it, bring it to us in order for us to be saved. And I love that because you know what? We would do it a different way, wouldn't we? That's not the way we would do it. If human beings had their way, if they could come up with their own version of the gospel, there is no way they would figure out that that's the way to do it. So I love that God comes up with a fairly crazy, different, heaven-made way of salvation. I know. I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to make him manifest himself in the form of a human being as a baby in Israel, as a Jew in the first century there in humankind, and I'm going to have him live his life, a perfect life, and I'm going to have him be crucified on a wooden cross there, and then he will die a physical death, and I'll have him be buried for three days, and then I will raise him up on the third day like that. That's, that's the way for mankind to be saved. What would we do? We would say, well, you know, gee, couldn't you just let us all have a pass and get there? That's what we would do, you know. We would do anything but the way God did it. And so Paul says, he says, no, it's, it's a revelation from God. It's a supernatural event, a supernatural process from a supernatural idea. That's not how man would do it, period. Now, what does he do? He gives his background in verse 13, where you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. You better believe it. You know, Paul's reputation went far and wide what kind of a man he was. You know, there is no way they wanted to hear that Saul was going to show up in town if there were Christians there. There's no way. You know, it's almost like one of the Old Testament prophets. You know, you did not want to see the prophet show up in your town because if the prophet showed up in your town, you knew something was going to happen. You know, like Samuel. Samuel would show up into a town and, oh, no, it's the prophet Samuel. What is going to happen here? Or Elijah. So if Saul showed up in a town, man, word went around, you better run and you better hide. He, he, they know. But my conversation time passed, and I love the word passed. In the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it that way and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Uh, you know, he, he tried to destroy Jesus. He tried to destroy Christianity. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Acts chapter 8. Because there he was before his conversion as Stephen, the spirit-filled deacon. He was a table waiter. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a teacher. Uh, he wasn't a prophet. He was a spirit-filled table waiter, you know, you know, an, an usher, uh, Sunday school, you know, like the deacons around here. And here he was just full of the Spirit of God, and he's, you know, talking about Jesus Christ here. And, man, what happens? Everybody gets incensed, and they're vicious, and they're angry, and they stone him. But at the beginning of that chapter, it tells us that Saul had already built himself a reputation, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, you know. I mean, he wanted to be loud. He wanted to scare people. He wanted to let people know, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. And then he would slaughter people. He would kill them, vicious man that he was in his religion. 
But Paul's writing this, and he goes, hey, listen, I, I just want you to know those Judaizers that came into town, those guys who seem to be so innocent, those, those men who came to you and, and they seem to have your best interest in mind, you know, listen, I know what they're like because I was one. I was worse than them. Let me tell you, those Judaizers, they're vicious people. And what they do to people if you don't agree with them. So let me tell you what they're like here, and let me explain what their motivation is internally here. You know, I think what he's trying to tell them is, is look, <laughs> they're not innocent. They have an axe to grind. Because I had an axe to grind. It wasn't just that I disagreed. I hated them. You know. And I think that's true for a lot of people that attack Christianity. I think there's more than just whether or not they're searching for the truth. I think internally there's a spiritual axe to grind. But look at it. Look at this is the kind of a vicious man he was. And I love to always reflect on this. You know, you, you should never forget this. Never forget this. Can you think of somebody right now that hates Christianity? Can you think of somebody right now that may hate you? You know, maybe they've threatened you. Maybe they've gotten right in your grill. You know, don't you ever talk to me about Jesus again. If you ever bring that up again, you know, maybe they've threatened you that way. And you might be thinking, my goodness, you know, there's just no way that person is ever going to get saved, <laughs> They are just so far gone. They're just so far away. I mean, they're, they're not even close, you know. And, and we, on a human level, you know, we, we, we have the wrong idea as far as who's close, who's not close, and, and what it takes to be near to God and all of that. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who are like that. And when they're that fierce and they're that angry about Christ or Christianity, or the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is going on inside? What, you know, what, what, what's going on in there? What, what, what happened to them, you know? Because over the course of my, my whole ministry life here, I've recognized and learned that most people who act that way toward the gospel or toward Christ or toward you, they don't do it for intellectual reasons. They do it for emotional reasons. Most people that are that adamant or that vicious or that angry or that upset, it's not because of a logical reason. It's because of a hurt or a loss or a bitterness or uh, things didn't turn out the way they wanted, you know. You know, like Darwin, you know, ultimately rooted back to the loss of his daughter. You know, this one-time Christian became an atheist. Um, A lot of times when I think about these popular atheists, um, I think, you know, 90% of all of their effort and energy and money and activity goes toward attacking Christianity. 90%. And it always makes me wonder, well, why don't they go after the Muslims? Why don't they go after Muhammad or Allah? Why don't they go after the billion or so Buddhists in the world, or the Hindus, the billion Hindus in the world. Why, why don't they give equal time to all these other religions if they are genuinely concerned about the truth that there is no God? I mean, look, we only have one God. Hindu has 33 million, you know? How about some equal time here, okay? <laughs> Go spend your time on Hinduism, you know? <laughs> But doesn't it make you wonder? What is the deal? You know, it shows us that there's something else going on in here. It shows us that there's something spiritual in nature. That somehow, yeah, they're not going to waste their time on Islam or Hinduism or Shintoism. They're not going to waste their time on Buddhism. No, they're, they're getting to the truth. You know, they're getting to Christ, getting to the gospel here. But if you know one like that, if you know a person like that, that's at that stage, breathing out threatenings and angry and, 
And you're just, you know, you're walking on pins and needles if you ever mention anything because they're just a powder keg ready to blow. Listen, they are a lot closer than we know. They're a lot closer. You know, didn't, didn't Jesus write to the church at Laodicea? What did he write in chapter 3 there? You know, that was a church that was what? They weren't hot. They weren't cold. They were lukewarm. You know, the worst condition is not cold. The worst condition is not angry. The worst condition is not bitter. The worst condition is indifferent. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. Now, here's Jesus writing to the church who was indifferent. I mean, they had a worse condition than a cold person who's unsaved outside of the church. That condition was so bad in Laodicea, Jesus is outside of the church knocking on the door trying to get in. Let me in. They don't even know he's not in the church. But then again, they could care less. He says, you're lukewarm. I, I, I spew you out of my mouth. It makes me sick. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Paul was cold, you know. He was so cold, he was so angry, he was so frustrated, you know. But that shows us that something is going on, and he's wrestling with it, wrestling with it on the inside there, you know. I've had several people that I've talked to over the years. On the outside, full composure, you know. Full composure, you know. You know, they don't want to convey to me that they're really that angry on the inside. On the inside, they're full of anger and bitterness. But on the outside, as an atheist, you know, they want to have it all together, that they have a control, they don't need God, and, and they're going to be nicer than the Christian, you know. But on the inside, just rage, inner rage towards Christ, to the Lord. So if you know somebody like that, just keep praying because they could be just like Saul right there, ready to be a brand plucked out of the fire. Do you know that Jesus is saving radical radical imams all across the world right now. He's redeeming them. Modern-day Saul's. I mean, these are people like Saul who hate Christians. I mean, think of ISIS. Think of what's going on all around the world, Christians being burned and persecuted. And Jesus is personally walking up to imams where they are. These are the Saul's who are preaching in the mosque there. They're getting saved. Isn't that incredible? And they're having to walk away from Islam, walk away from their fellow imams, you know, and then follow Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the cost? What it would cost them? So this is Paul here. Look at uh, verse 14. Profited above. It means uh, he was proficient. It means he made progress. No, Paul wasn't satisfied just to be a Jew. I mean, he went to the school of Gamaliel. He studied. He was a great student. Um, secular humanists even agree that Paul had one of the greatest minds in all of human history. And he would take that mind and he would apply it to Judaism, rabbinical Judaism. And he would study, 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 and he would work his way up through the ranks, and he would become a, a rabbi of the rabbis, a Jew of the Jews, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he just had a great pedigree. And what would he do? He would work his way up, and we believe, I'm not 100% sure, but we believe with some pretty good certainty that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, that would be the elite status. There's only 70-some guys in Jerusalem that would meet together. Can you imagine the reputation of the Sanhedrin in all of Jerusalem, religiously, scholarly, you know, the papers he would write or the books he would have to write or the lectures he would give, the way he would talk, you know, they would meet, you know, in that hall of hewn stones almost every day in Jerusalem there. Only 70 guys go in there, only 70 guys go out. And he would have a particular elite status and reputation there and he was entrenched in it, and his livelihood was based off of it. And now he gets saved. Now he gets saved, and now all of a sudden, even his livelihood, his income, his reputation, now the 70, the other guy, all these men, all of his colleagues here, he'd have to walk away from them. And not only that, now they would be his enemy. You know, now the hunter would be hunted by his own you know, and hated and ridiculed. 
this way. He had to walk away from it all. A man with that notoriety and that reputation, you'd have to consider that cost. But you know, it's just like the Lord. That's what the Lord does. He saves people like that, and he asks them, can you walk away from it? And they have to consider the cost. Um, I think of professors in academia today who build their whole life on evolution. You know, here they are. They know that, man, I'm gifted this way. I'm going to believe in science, and I'm going to go after science. And, and so they hit the books, and they get good grades, and they get their degrees, and so they get hired into academia. And they're professors, and, man, the peer-reviewed papers, and to get published this way, and to give their lectures, and to have breakthroughs and discoveries this way, and then write the books, and then the notoriety, and all the peer review and everything. And here they are, and then they're born again. Now what do I do? Now my family is living off the income from the university that I've built my life off of. And now what does this mean if I have to walk away from it all? How are we gonna live? How am I gonna feed my kids? And what is the faculty gonna say? And am I gonna lose my prestige and my status? And what am I gonna do with my life? Where am I gonna go? You know, That happens on a regular basis. I think of my good friend Guillermo Gonzalez who we had here at the church. I mean, he's one of the brightest uh, astronomers that are out there, uh, was on the faculty at Iowa State there for years and years, and then all of a sudden, it was discovered that he believes in creation, you know, a creator. So he was scheduled for tenure, you know, but they refused to give him tenure, you know. And here, after all these years, after all they've done, well-respected, now just because he's a believer in Jesus Christ, that's all gone. So he had to leave, and he gets a job at Grove City College down here, you know, in Pennsylvania. Or Dr. Richard Lumsden. He was a professor of cell biology at Tulane University. Here, here, same path, just like I just described to you. Brilliant man, peer review papers, books. Uh, here he is, a professor at Tulane, uh, highly regarded amongst all of his peers here. And after one of his lectures, a female student walked up to him and says, great lecture, Doc. Can I ask you a few questions? And he felt pretty good about it. This is his own words. He says, yeah, sure. You know. And so um, class is dismissed. Everybody goes out. And, and so she just asks him a couple of basic questions. She's not controversial. She's not challenging him. She just genuinely has questions about the class. She's a believer. Um, and she says, you know, how did life arise? You know, and then she asks, isn't DNA too complex to just kind of automatically just appear like that? Uh, why are there gaps in the fossil record between major kinds? Um, can you tell me what the missing links exactly are between apes and humans? I mean, just real simple questions, you know? She was just, just very free just to ask these questions. And he tells his testimony like this. He says, you know, I got my, my mind, you know, just started to fire it up like a combustible engine. <laughs> You know, and he said, I had all the standard answers ready to go. And he said, that's what I did. I rolled out all the standard answers that education and science had taught me. And he says, this is what happened. As I'm saying the answers, I'm recognizing, you know what? None of this makes any sense at all based on what I know about biology. So he gets done with all the answers, and outwardly he says, I was very confident that I had proven myself worthy, and I had pretty much destroyed that little girl's questions, and then she went off there. He says, but inwardly I was devastated. I was just wrecked. You see, for him, on that day, that was his Damascus Road. That's when it started to click. He says, you know what? I've been wrong all along. I've just been spouting out answers here. It just so happens, as the Holy Spirit was beginning to work on him this way, I think the following day or day after there, his daughter, wherever she lived, called him up and says, hey, um, can you come to church with me? Just coincidence, you know. And so he would never think about stepping foot in a church, you know. But somehow he was compelled to do it. Okay, I'll go to church, you know. 
never believed the gospel, never believed the Bible, never believed in Jesus, never believed in creation, all that. And he's sitting there in the church, and the pastor is laying out the gospel. God sent his son to die for you. He died on a cross for your sins. He was buried, and after three days, he rose again. And at the end of the message there, he says the pastor gave an altar call and says, would you come up front here and follow Jesus Christ? He says, I got up out of my seat, and every step of the way, my flesh was resisting. What are you doing? But I couldn't help it. I had to go. And on that day, I decided to make Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior that way. Guess what happened? The faculty ejected him immediately from his position. You see, he had to count the cost. Can you imagine Paul and what happened to him when he had to follow Jesus Christ and then talk to all those people? So Paul says, this is who I was, but I walked away from it because I'm a God pleaser. Verse 15, but, I like this, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Now, Paul routinely refers to his calling. You know, he'll do that in almost every letter uh, to kind of remember what happened on that day. But now he does something different. Now he goes well beyond that fateful day on the Damascus Road. Now he goes back, 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 back all the way to his birth. Because now, having more than 2020 hindsight, he's looking back and he's recognizing that God had this planned all along. That he was born for this, that he was born to do this in his life. Look, he says, he goes all the way back to his birth here, you know, just looking back at the wisdom and also the providence and the involvement of God kind of shaping and molding and moving and directing and who knows what he thought of, you know, only Paul knows every action in his life here and thinking back of how many different times God must have, you know, shifted things and moved things to get him to where he is today like this, but he's recognized God had a plan for his life all that long ago, you know, like Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter one, he says, Jeremiah, Guess what? I'm calling you to be a prophet. He's, he's a teenager. I'm calling you to be a prophet to the nation. And Jeremiah, I mean, God knows that Jeremiah, what, me? I'm the most unlikely candidate. Can't you get somebody else? And God says, no, before you were born, I knew you, you know, and I formed you, and I have a plan for you, and this is what it's going to look like. I'm going to raise you up, and what you're going to do is you're going to tear down and you're going to build up. You're going to tear down and you're going to build up, you know. You're going to tell people that they need to repent, they need to humble themselves, and then you're going to encourage saints and build them back up this way. That's, that's, that's what your ministry is going to be like, you know. But he did it with Jeremiah, he did it with Paul, um, and I have no doubt that you probably have had a sense like that too, you know. Now that you're saved, 2020 is one thing, but you have, you have much better than 2020 hindsight now because you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. You know, I was reading about baseball players. Baseball players, I mean, how can they hit that ball? It's only 90 feet or something like that. How can they hit that ball traveling at 95 miles an hour? Well, here's the trick. Baseball players don't see 2020. They see 2013. So they can see so much better than you and I do. That's why. But you and I as born again, now that we're saved and now that we have the Holy Spirit, we have much better than 2020 hindsight. We can look back and we go, oh, yeah, Lord, I, I can see how, man, I, am, I almost died that day, and you saved my life. Man, that was a close call that day, and you, you rescued me. I should have been a goner then. I should have been a goner then. Or you know what? You had me meet this person, and that was a fateful meeting that day. With that. Had I not met that person and heard what they had to say, I wouldn't be here today, you know? So you can look back on your life, too, and you can just trace the steps and say, wow, Lord, you've been involved much longer than just my salvation here to get me to where I need to be here. And that's nothing more than the providence of God. You know, you can't really escape that idea of predestination. You know, Ephesians 1 says what? We are predestined to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ. 
You know, you, you just can't really escape that. Somehow, some way. Now, I don't necessarily understand it all. I just have to believe it, you know, that somehow God was involved way before I even could figure out that he's involved, you know. I think it's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, it says that, that Jesus did what? He brought many sons under glory. You know, we've been adopted in, and he's brought many sons into the family of God. We, we have a family of God here. Some of our families in heaven, right? According to Ephesians 3, but some of our families here. We have a huge, we have a huge family. Can you imagine what the family gathering is going to be like at the Thanksgiving in heaven? Holy cow. It really will be holy cow. We'll be in heaven. But up there with all the family in heaven, what a get together there. So now your eyes of understanding are open, and you understand the providence of God more than you ever have. Uh, look at verse 16. To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. What happened there? Um, of course, you know, he, he was in Damascus. That's where he was. And God sent Ananias. God himself went to Ananias and said, Ananias, here, you've heard of Saul of Tarsus? Yeah, who hasn't? I've heard of Saul of Tarsus. Well, I want you to go to Saul of Tarsus here, and I want you to tell him this message. Give him this message. I want you to tell him what his ministry is going to be like. I, I've called him. I've saved him, and I want him to do this for me. And Ananias' response is, you, you want me to go where? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Lord, are you sure you know what you're talking about? Have you ever done that to the Lord? He tells you to do something. Lord, I, do you know what you're talking about? <laughs> And so Ananias does the same thing. He says, are you sure, Lord? Yeah, I'm sure. I want you to go talk to him. Now, get this. You know, here's Ananias. He shows up to Saul. He's probably nervous. You know, he's probably, you know, I don't know if this is, did I hear from you, Lord? Did I not hear from you, Lord? And, you know, he's kind of step by step here, taking it easy, kind of feeling him out, what's going on. Saul explains what's going on. I'm blind. He can't see. You know, this is what happened on that day. He tells his testimony. Ananias kind of warms up. He feels more comfortable. And so he's told, wow, I'm, I'm supposed to baptize you. And think of Ananias. Here he is. He's taken the Saul of Tarsus that has this reputation, not only in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, but all over the area as far as Christians are concerned. Can you imagine the surreal feeling of Ananias baptizing Saul of Tarsus? You know, I can't... I can't believe I'm baptized. Is this really happening? I'm baptizing. He's a Christian now. He's identifying with Christ's death and resurrection, right? I mean, just, I mean, to talk to Ananias, Ananias, what was that like, you know? And to baptize Saul and then to bring him up, you know, amazing like that. And then in verse 17, he says, Neither went I up to Jerusalem... To them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, this is most likely where Saul or Paul by now, I'm, I'm not sure if he's Paul yet, but Saul or Paul, you know who we're talking about, the apostle. But this is most likely the area where Paul received much of his revelation much of the revelation that we have in the letters here. You say, well, what, Pastor? What are you talking about, Pastor? What's the revelation? I mean, you know, like the revelation of uh, the church, the mystery of the church. You know, Paul writes of the mystery of the church, and I think it's Ephesians chapter 3 there, but the mystery all through the Old Testament, nobody could see that coming. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament, they didn't see it. They only saw certain things on the horizon. I, I think of an image like this. Uh, think of a man standing in a valley or actually up on a hill, and all he can see is mountain peaks. He can't see the valleys in between the mountain peaks. All he can see is the peaks. You know, Isaiah was like that. Ezekiel was like that. Daniel was like that. Only certain things. But they didn't see the mystery of the church. And so Paul was what? He was an apostle born out of due time, and Jesus gave him the revelation of the church there. And then he would write about it. So now in the New Testament, it's unveiled. It was there all along, just nobody could see it. You know, Jesus had to do what? Give him the revelation, pull the cloak off so all the outline could be seen. Uh, he certainly would have the revelation of the rapture of the church, uh, much of the second coming. He wasn't the only one, but he would detail some of it. 
Um, certainly the Antichrist or the delusion. That's why 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is full of the revelation that Paul got from Jesus Christ. And a lot of that would happen right here in verse 17 in Arabia. You know, um, what happened in Damascus? He goes, he gets saved, he preaches the gospel. They had to get him out of there, didn't they? They had to lower him through a window so he could escape with his life. And so he goes out to Arabia to spend time with the Lord, just him and the Lord. And, you know, you can do yourself a favor. Do yourself a big, huge favor and do that like Paul. Just get alone with Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to Arabia, you know, but find an alone spot, just you and him, where you can just hear him and listen to him. Isn't it noisy nowadays? You know, just the schedule, the responsibilities, the duties, uh, the interruptions, you know. Um, you know, let people know, I need to spend time with the Lord. And, and hopefully they'll understand. And you'll just have to keep turning off all of the different notifications and just, you know, I'm just going to get along with the Lord. There's no substitute for it. There is no substitute whatsoever, you know. Not even a Bible study is a substitute for spending time alone with Jesus Christ. Bible study is important, you know, but just alone time with him out there in your own Arabia, wherever that is, to hear from him. So then, after Damascus, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Now, what's missing between verse 17 and 18 that we get from Acts chapter 9 However long he spent in Arabia, we don't know how long, but Acts chapter 9 tells us he goes back to Damascus. He doesn't leave Arabia and go to Jerusalem. He goes back to Damascus. He spends three years in Damascus there. So he goes back to preaching in the synagogues and reaching Christians. Yeah, I don't know. You know, this was his last mission of death. You know, this was his last mission where he was going to kill Christians. You know, who knows? Maybe he felt... Uh, you know, directed by the Lord, or maybe he just felt like he needed to do that to just build the church more than he sought to destroy it there. But he spends three years in Damascus, and then and only then, he says in verse 18, I went up to Jerusalem. Remember, wherever you are when you go to Jerusalem, it's up, right? Now, you geography students, you know in your mind's eye that Damascus is up here and Jerusalem is down here, right? So you're thinking the Bible has a discrepancy. Oh, he says he went up to Jerusalem. That map is backward. No. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's always Mount Zion. It's up to the hill of the Lord. It's where the temple is. So in elevation um, and spiritual elevation, it's up. So after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother there. I'd love to try to think about what that would be like. I mean, here, here's the apostle Paul who already has this reputation of Saul. Now, I know what Acts 9 says. Acts 9 says the disciples were nervous. They didn't want to touch him. He was one hot potato. They didn't want to touch him with a 10-foot pole because they thought, man, he's going to kill us. And so they thought, that at the time when people are saying, oh, Saul's here, he's a Christian, that it was a lie. This is one of his lies to trap them and debate them. And so uh, it took Barnabas, who was the son of consolation. And Barnabas took a risk, went out to Paul and said, hey, listen, is this the real deal? What's going on? And then ministered to him. And then he was the one who actually told Peter and John, the disciples, say, hey, no, he's legit. He's saved now. He's our brother now. And actually, Barnabas was the one to try to, you know, put his own life all in the line to make sure that this meeting happened. But think of it. He and Peter and the brother of Jesus, James. You know, you think of the way they would talk and what they would talk about, you know. You know, Paul would have to do what? He'd have to say, well, this is my interaction with Jesus. You know, this is how I got saved. This is what he told me. This is the mission he gave me. And then I, I spent all this time in Arabia, whatever it was, and my goodness, I, he told me this and he told me that and told me this. 
everything that he would talk to Peter about would be about his relationship in Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that he'd be intrigued for 15 days to hear from Peter and James, tell me, tell me about your relationship. Tell me what he was like, you know. Tell, tell me how he lived, you know. And James, no doubt, would say, well, let me tell you what it was like growing up with him, okay? I can never beat him, you know. <laughs> he was the perfect son, you know, <laughs> or something like that. But then to be in a disciple, and then Peter as a disciple, and to share the experience of everything that went on for the three years in the ministry there, like that back and forth, back and forth about their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, brother and sister, it doesn't get any better than that. Some of the richest fellowship that you and I can have is based off our own interaction in our life with Jesus Christ with one another. You know, absolutely, fellowship can go beyond, well beyond that. We talk about our trials, our difficulties, you know, the needs we have. We pray for one another, but it doesn't get any better than when you can share what Jesus is doing in your life and how you're interacting with him and how he's interacting with you with somebody else and then have them share what he's meaning to them and what he's doing with them in their life too, you know. It's rich. It's powerful. I was driving down to the castle um, for shepherd school here. And a lot of times at shepherd school, I just, I like the quiet drive. Um, I, I love to just be quiet, be alone. Uh, but sometimes I get to catch up on calls and things like that. So um, part of the way I was doing some calls, phone calls, and there was a couple pastors I needed to touch base with and catch up with. So I have this um, friend in California, and the Lord is just doing incredible things with the fellowship and in his life and and I owed him a phone call and he told me hey when you drive down the castle give me a call I said okay so I called him up and um you know he starts sharing with me you know what the Lord is doing in his life and how the Lord is ministering to him or what scriptures he's working into his life and and I started to do the same thing you know, I started thinking, he said, where are you at with the Lord? What's, what's he telling you? It had nothing to do with the church, had nothing to do with the ministry, had nothing to do with the family, nothing. It was just, you know, mano a mano, you know, me and Jesus, what's going on? And I can remember, I, you know, I know exactly where the Lord has me and at the time. Um, and at the time, you know, I, just, I just told him, you know, the scriptures that we're going through on a Sunday morning, it just... Um, I just had a sense personally that, that Jesus had me in his woodshed, <laughs> you know, for a while. You know, I just found myself going through 1 Corinthians like that in many ways on a personal level that Jesus was speaking loud and clear, disciplining me or shaping me and honing me this way, um, you know, not in a nasty way, but in a lovingly way, in a corrective way this way. And so here I am, I'm sharing this, you know, my personal walk with him. And he's doing likewise where he is in Scripture and what the Lord's saying to him. And I got to tell you, I mean, I don't know how, I, I think I had my phone plugged in, you know, otherwise I would have drained the battery. We just talked. I didn't realize how long we talked. We just talked and talked and talked. But I got done. We prayed for one another. And I got to tell you, I felt so sharpened by that conversation, you know, like that proverb, iron sharpens iron, you know, just a fellowship in the richness of our own walk with Jesus Christ, you know. So here's Paul, here's Peter, and that's what they're doing, you know. The thing that they have in common is Jesus Christ, you know, and James too. So use that, use that in your fellowship. In verse 20, he says, now, the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I'm not lying. He says, I don't, I don't care what they told you about me, it's a lie, you know. I'm telling you the truth. And this is the way it was, and this is what happened to me, and this is how I am. Um, afterwards, I came to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and how did that work out? Acts chapter 9 tells us he didn't spend very long there. Um, it turns out that what happened in Jerusalem was um, another commotion rose around the Apostle Paul. And I think it says the Cilicians had an uproar. Now, it could be the Cilicians were the Greeks that were around Stephen when Stephen was preaching and he was stoned there. 
we, we have good evidence that that's who they were. And so they might have heard that, oh, now Saul is no longer Saul. He's Paul. He's with Stephen. He's with the apostles. And these same guys were upset again at the time. But here's the apostle Paul. It just seems like wherever he goes, there's trouble. Whether it's Damascus or Jerusalem, here he is. He's answered the call of God. He's following Jesus Christ. He's being faithful to do what he's supposed to do. And he's getting nothing but trouble for it. Have you had a sense of that in your life? Have you had a sense of, man, I'm, I'm following you, Jesus. I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do here. I, you know, it just seems like it's not easy. It seems like things are getting more difficult, you know. So what would happen to Paul is, here he is, all this trouble arises. It's causing more trouble for Peter and James and John and the ministry. And so they take him down to Caesarea and they put him on a ship and they send him off to Syria and Cilicia. If you want to write in your notes, write Tarsus. He would sail back to his hometown, Tarsus, up in the southern Galatia region here, you know, in modern day Turkey. So they just send him away. And he was unknown by faith unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preach the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorify God in me. And I would expect that by this time, when the disciples would grab him and suggest to him, hey, you know what, Paul, you need to get out of here. You need to go back home. I would, I would expect that Paul would be probably going through his mind, you know, did I do something wrong? You know, was it something I said? Um, could I have gone through it a little bit differently? Maybe my approach could have been different. Um, did I hear you right, Lord? Was I supposed to go to Jerusalem? Because it just seems wherever he was, trouble was there, you know. And I think that's good for us to know because trouble is not the sign of whether or not we're doing the right thing necessarily. You know, sometimes trouble comes with being a Christian. Sometimes trouble, difficulty, trials, opposition, Warfare comes when we're doing the very right thing we're supposed to do. So here he goes. He's not preaching. He's not witnessing. He's going back to being a tent maker up in his hometown. He has no ministry. He's been promised a ministry. Um, he ministered for three years. Maybe he's thinking, is that it? Is that all I have? Maybe, maybe that's all God had for me. You know, Maybe I'm done now. And there he is, except... Even though he's not there, what do these verses tell us? But they had heard only that he was persecuted, or that he which persecuted us in times past preached the faith which once he destroyed. And guess what? Just his reputation of being transformed, just his reputation of being changed started to spread to the church. And as opposed to destroying the church, it built up the church and gave the church confidence. So God used Paul even when he wasn't there. Isn't that great? To build them up and to strengthen them for an eventual return of Paul with Barnabas. And listen, if the Lord can do that with Saul, he can do that with anybody. So he can do that with all of our leaders, all those people that are just so staunchly opposed to Jesus here. So Paul tells them, look at I was them, I was worse than them, I came out of them, don't listen to them. And he's going to continue through the next chapter to verse 14. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Scott Gallatin. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor Scott's ministry by visiting www.ccfingerlakes.org.